We're in Matthew 15 this morning, and um, Jesus is going to start, uh, very much in Matthew 15, to start getting very, very pointed and very aggressive as he addresses the Pharisees, okay? Um, we're about at the, uh, we're probably three to six months out from the crucifixion, to be quite honest with you. And so from Matthew 15 forward, we're going to start accelerating the timeline. Uh, the first 15 chapters, we've done two and a half years of work, okay? The last, the last 13 chapters or so, if I, 14, if I do math right, there's 28 chapters in Matthew, um, it, it, the timeline really starts compressing but gets really, really rich, okay? So about this time, Jesus is getting really, really fatigued by the amount of people that continue to come and, and, and be around him, okay? His humanity is being tested. Now, Jesus will not fail this test, but he is definitely being pressed. So the closer we get to the end of Matthew, or at least to the crucifixion, the more you'll see Jesus pulling back from the, the larger group and spending time with the, Pharise uh, uh, with, the, with the disciples. But the Pharisees, sensing this blood in the water, they start sending their, their top dogs, their emissaries, into the fray. Come on in. So Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, begins this way. It says, now some Pharisees and scribes, and my Bible includes this phrase, came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Do y'all have that? All right, some translations don't have that. Um, there's some argument whether it was in the original or if it was added later just for some flavor, not flavor, but like someone said, well, we know where they came from, just, but not, maybe, maybe he doesn't know, so go ahead and put in that they came from Jerusalem. Uh, what does that phrase, the Pharisees from Jerusalem, what does that kind of speak to you? Talk to me. What does that kind of feel like? These are not, these are not country Pharisees. These are the top dogs. Yes. So years ago, when I was in seminary, I was in uh, North Carolina, my wife and I were living in a little town called Youngsville, North Carolina. It was about 15 miles north of the seminary, and it was our first house purchase, and we bought this little lovely house. The previous owner was the worship minister at a large Baptist church in the area, and he'd moved out, but it had been tagged by the local Kingdom Hall and the traveling folks, the Jehovah's Witnesses, as the minister's house. So we got regular routine check-ins from the local Kingdom Hall. And um, I don't know how he engaged with them, but I chose a path that I, I once regretted. Um, so typically, whether it's our uh, LDS folks, uh, Latter-day Saint Mormons, or it's the Jehovah's Witness, they come in pairs, and typically they have a high-achieving scholar uh, that is very well versed in that particular religious fervency. And then they've got the dum-dum that they're trying to train up, right? So it'd be like me and Gary, and Gary's going to be the lead guy to talk, and I'm just going to be like learning and, and trying to smile a lot. Okay, that's what my role is. Well, that's who came to my door that day. It was an older black lady who was the, the Kingdom Hall queen. She had it all squared away. And this young white kid with a broken arm uh, who had broken his arm skateboarding and uh, my job at that point in my life was to spot the dum-dum and then go after him uh, or her whoever it was and so uh, I, I it very quickly became evident she was the she was the brain and he was you know he was there learning and so I just turned all my attention to him and I just would talk to him 
I would talk to him about skateboarding and talk to him about the wheels he used, the bearings he liked, uh, what, kind of, what kind of trucks he had on his uh, skateboard. At one point, I had all that stored away in my, uh, my deep, deep memory. And uh, he and I actually had a great conversation, but I could tell it was alienating um, the queen over here because she couldn't get her message out. And I knew when he left that like they're gonna they're gonna be some retraining for him. Well, the next week, next Saturday comes around, and I get a knock on the door, and two very well dressed men uh, from Raleigh. Well, he's the capital of, of North Carolina, uh, and they were from the the Big Kingdom Hall organization in Raleigh, North Carolina. And apparently, I had tripped one of their uh, proximity sensors. And, uh, and so they sent two of their big dogs, good morning, two of their big dogs to my front porch to talk about Kingdom Hall business. And they knew their stuff. Now, I was uh, a second-year seminarian at that point, so I was pretty sure I knew my stuff, and we knew enough to kind of go toe-to-toe, but I wasn't showing the love of Jesus, and neither were they. Um, so I don't know if that was a win. All I know is I know what that this moment felt like for the disciples when the Pharisees from Jerusalem showed up, okay? The congressional aide or the aide to the, the president showed up. They're not super important because they still got sent out, but they're from Jerusalem, so they, they've got the name tags, the Jerusalem Order of Pharisees or whatever that looked like. And they come to Jesus, and they must have been sitting down eating at some point so there must have been a lull in the conversation and they're just kind of back on the they're over here pharisees y'all sat on the pharisee side today congratulations um so the pharisees are kind of just watching jesus and uh they must have gotten to the point where it was time to eat because they're going to call out a tactical error of the disciples and notice they didn't call out jesus they just called out his disciples. So Jesus must have been doing what they thought was right. And the disciples, these fishermen and tax collectors and ruffians, they weren't keeping the, the rules. Look what it says. Why do your disciples break the tradition of our or the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And you're like, ew, gross. They didn't wash their hands. Well, that's not at all what this is indicating. According to Exodus chapter 30, verse 19, established way back in the Old Testament, Moses had commanded from God that when the priest would go in to serve before the holy place or the holy of holies, that they had to ceremonially wash. Now, between Exodus and Matthew uh, is a whole bunch of history, like thousands of years of history. And so in that time, Pharisees had developed knew that the rule had evolved it's not for the priest if it's good enough for the priest to worship before god it's good enough for all of us to do all of the time especially you you dirty fishermen and so what they would do is they would uh they would hold up their hands and they would take a very specific kind of water pitcher that was for this purpose only they'd travel with it and it had to be running water that they secured, and then they would pour it over their hands until it dripped down to their elbow, and then they would turn it over, and they would pour it from about their mid-high uh, wrist up to their elbow until it dripped off their fingertips, and they would do it on both hands, and that was their ceremonial hand washing. There are records in the Inquisition, uh, the Spanish Inquisition, 
1,600 years later, those of you historians, and you know I just misspoke my, my years, y'all correct me later. But during the Spanish Inquisition, when many of the, those in the Catholic Church were trying to force conversions upon the Jews, they would hold back water and food from them. But when they did give them to them, the Jews wouldn't drink first. They would use their small little cups of water to ceremonially cleanse. This was a big deal to them. But guess where it's not? It's not in the Bible. Okay? And so they're coming at Jesus going, hey, we've got this tradition. Why don't your disciples follow the tradition that we have for ourselves? And Jesus says in verse 3, he answered and he said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? All right. Take a breather here. Notice what Jesus didn't do here. They accused him of not washing, his disciples not washing their hands. How did Jesus reply to that? A counter accusation of greater condemnation. Okay? It's like one of your kids going, uh, Joshi didn't wipe his feet when he came in the door. And then my daughter would say, or my son Joshua would say, oh, yeah, well, she, she wrecked the car. <laughs> right? I mean, so it was, a, it was not just a one-up. It was a big one-up. It's like, oh, we didn't keep a simple tradition. Will you outright break God's commandment, not this oral tradition that has been passed down for generations? You're breaking the overt word of God. And he just starts to lay into him. Look what he says. For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of the father and mother is to be put to death. Now, Exodus 21, 17 is quoted here. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Now, whether or not you're a Bible scholar is of no concern. Could we all agree that the Ten Commandments are kind of a big deal for the Jews? And they're a pretty big deal for us too, right? All right, for various reasons. But... They've got lots of rules, but there are ten that we absolutely got to, that's the original Ten Commandments. That's the laws of Moses given by God to Moses. Simple as that. We cannot break those. And Jesus goes right for the jugular here. He's like, oh, we're breaking some ceremonial laws that you made up, but you're breaking one of the actual Ten Commandments. Let's press on. But you say, verse 5, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that, I, uh, that would help you has been given to God. See, God, uh, Jesus is fully God, right? He knows something about these Pharisees from Jerusalem that not everybody knows. See, he's looked into the heart of that Pharisee, and he goes, Huh, I know who you are. I know who your parents are. I know what you want to be when you grow up. I know what your future looks like and what your past looks like. Jesus fully looked into one, if not all, of the Pharisees' souls, and he found something that was absolutely treacherous in terms of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish law. Now, they had a special caveat. The Pharisees always did this. They would say, you can't do this, and then they would put a big asterisk beside it. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all remember Barry, Barry Bonds? Y'all remember, you know the guy? You know he, ha he has the home run record for the MLB? Do you know that? All right, all right, that's a great question. Did you know that the ball that he hit, the home run that, that went over the record, that has the top record, is in the Hall of Fame? Did you know that? Okay, 
a guy actually bought it and donated it to the Hall of Fame after he had branded a giant asterisk on it. So Bobby, uh, our uh, Barry Bonds home run record baseball is in the Hall of Fame with a giant branded asterisk on the back because people said, well, he cheated. He used, he used performance enhancing drugs to get there. Okay? The Pharisees had all kind of rules for you, but then they'd put an asterisk beside it and go, now there are ways around this. They were to honor their father and mother. That is to say, as, would any of y'all allow your parents to live in destitution? Right? No. With, within our power, we're going to make sure that our parents are well cared for. Well, the Pharisees would go, I've got, I've got some wealth. I, need, I want to protect this wealth. But my parents, God, they just, they're leeches on society. They want to eat every day. They need housing. Uh, uh, they need clothes. And they, they want stuff like to live off of. It's, just, it's like having kids all over again. And, um, but I don't, how do I protect, how do I tax shelter this from my parents? So they would go to the, to the temple and say, hey, I want to donate this land to the temple. But the, but the Pharisees had said, look, it's donated to the temple. You've given it to us in your will. That's the temple's. That's an honorable thing you've done. But until, until you die, you can live off the fruit of that land, but only you, nobody else. So what they do is they tax shelter their property with the temple, air quotes, right? And then they wouldn't have to pay their parents. Is that, is that devious or what? All right, so that's what Malcolm was over here doing to his parents, and it was awful. It was terrible. The Pharisees sitting over there, and Jesus saw straight through him right? Saw straight through it. And look what he says. Whoever says to his father, mother, whatever I have would help you, I've already given it to God. I've, I've donated it to the temple. But he is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. See, what I just told you about donating land to the temple and setting some aside for yourself but no one else, it's not in the Bible. But the Pharisees had created this secondary line of law that they were holding to, and that's what these Pharisees were doing. The same thing they were doing with the hand washing. And Jesus says, you come in at, at level one, I'm going to match you at level 10. Here we go. Verse 6, um, or verse 7, he says, you hypocrites. Now that word hypocrite is, uh, it's, uh, it literally words, it means to a play actor. Good morning. Uh, it literally means play actor. Now in, in this days of Greek theater, um, it, how, do y'all recall how they would demonstrate to the larger crowd what mood they were in? They had masks, exactly. So if they were a really happy character or a jovial character or a sad character, they had these clay masks that they would put on, and it would show to the larger group. That's the toilet. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, uh, we'll get there. Hey, look, we, we're a full, we're a full, we're a full service Bible teacher here. Um, Okay, But he says, you hypocrites, you play actors, you put on this veneer of righteousness. You put on this veneer of following God. But when you pull the mask off, you are just as filthy as everyone else. You think washing your hands and covering your face is what's going to get you in, in, good, in the good workings of God? No, 
friend, you're greatly disturbed. He actually quotes Isaiah 29, 13 here. And he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In the, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. Now, I'm going to take a minute just to stop here just for a second and say this. There are things in this world that God has set apart for you, okay, that you, you can't do in good conscience. But it's not in Scripture. So let's, let's take one big fat one that us Baptists really like to, to kind of hit him and haw about, uh, the consumption of alcohol. Now, I want to tell you, I come from a long line of alcoholic, uh, angry, alcoholic wife beaters, okay? That's, that's my people. My father came to know Christ when he was 16, was already an alcoholic, walked away from that, and I was raised a teetotaler. Y'all know what that is? No, you don't know. No, zero, none. That, no, none. And so in, in the Baptist culture I was raised in, um, like no alcohol, none whatsoever, and, and beer is the devil, and none of, you can't do any of that. Not even for you can't even put it on a chicken. I I I'm telling you, I was in I was in college. I was in college and went to mugshots in Hattiesburg, and I turned down the fries. Why? Because they're beer battered. Come on, people. Look, this is that was that was me. Okay. Uh, Jesus is going to talk about this here in a minute. Um, but they had made a rule for them, and then said. Now everybody has to live by it. There are certain things that I withhold from myself that are not good for me, but they're not bad for you. And they're not, if they're not locked away in Scripture, hey, you're free to, uh, to live in the freedom of Christ. So we need to have unity over the essentials that Jesus is Lord, and you only come to God through Jesus Christ alone, right? But beyond that, there's some things on the periphery that we're, we could just disagree with. I'm not going to do them with you. I can't participate in certain things. That's, all, that's for me. And there are certain things that you can't do, right? But that's for you. The Pharisees had taken a very narrow personal perspective and applied it to everyone and called everyone a sinner and condemned them all to hell. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus was doing just the opposite. He was confronting their religious prejudice. Not their biblical prejudice, but the ones that they had created in, created in their own head. Um, I would like to invite you on your own time to read Isaiah 29, verses 13 through 24. Um, for time's sake, we're not going to read it here this morning, but it's an incredible passage. This was, oh, we're going to do it anyway. It's too good. Isaiah 29. Um, it, Isaiah 29 is over in the Old Testament, um, and uh, there is this great little passage hidden over here, and you just will not believe what Jesus was saying to these uh, Pharisees when he pointed out the scripture to them. Because um, the Pharisees were masters. Uh, Isaiah 29, verse 13. They were masters at this, okay? They would have understood when Jesus started verse 13, they could have in memory quoted the rest of the chapter. This is how well-versed they were in Scripture. They knew the Scripture. Check out, check out this, though. Verse 13. And the Lord said, this is Isaiah the prophet, talking to the religious leaders of the time, because this people draw near with their words, 
honor me with their lips, their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from, far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Okay? That's the passage that Jesus quotes to them. This is what they would have heard in their heart, in their memory. Check this out. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously. Think tragically. Marvel is not like in superheroes, but like this is not good. I will once again deal horribly with this people, wondrously horrible. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. He says, I'm going to take the smart people, and I'm going to make them stupid. And people are still going to trust him. Uh-oh. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in the dark place. And they say, who sees us and who knows us? This is what was in the heart of the Pharisees. No one can see what's really going on. Verse 16, you turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That, that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed to say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Check out this. This is where it gets really good. Is it not yet a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field? Literally, I'm going to level it. Okay, Lebanon, uh, you get your cedars from Lebanon. You get your lumber from this country. And he's saying, I'm going to wipe them off, uh, off the map. Um, and the fertile field will be considered as a forest. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. So I'm going to destroy this side up here that you think is fertile, that you're getting all your hope from. And the blind will see and the deaf will hear. And again, Jesus kicked off this conversation over in Matthew. Check out verse 19. The afflicted will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One, a.k.a. the Anointed One, of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished, and indeed all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off, who cause a person to be indicted by a word, and ensnare him who uh, adjudicates at the gate, and defrauds the one at the, in the right with meaningless arguments. That's what the Pharisees had become. Verse 22, Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of, of Jacob, Jacob shall not be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hand in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth, and those who criticize will accept instruction. He's saying those who've got words and all they got this mouthiness they keep bringing up, I'm going to teach them a lesson, and I'm going to embarrass them in front of everybody. Come back to Matthew. Check this out. So Jesus has these really sharp words with the Pharisees over hand-washing because they're condemning his disciples for not washing their hands ceremonially before they, walk, before they eat. Okay? And then Jesus called the crowds to him. So he goes, okay, Pharisees are still sitting over there. Disciples are right here. Hey, hey guys, come on over. I want to teach you a lesson. Come on in. Come on in. I want to, I want to come on in to Jesus. And we're going to learn some learning today. And Jesus called the crowds to him and he said, hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth 
that defiles the man. The Gospel of Mark records this exact story, but adds these words. With these words, Jesus made all animals clean for eating. And all the pig-eating Gentiles said, Amen. Right? Good morning, good morning. Bacon is good, right? Um, so, all right, so this was such a weird statement for Jesus just to kind of come out of the blue with, right? It's not like, hey, it's Memorial Day today. We're going to talk about Memorial Day stuff. And then Jesus is like, oh, by the way, and he brings in some random uh, ceremonial holiday from Saudi Arabia that we know nothing about. Like, what, what is he talking about? Jesus kind of comes out of nowhere with this whole conversation, but he's going to tie it in. Check this out. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. And the disciples came and said to Jesus, Don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you make this statement? Oh, they're the Pharisees. Rachel, you sat on the Pharisee side again, sister. Uh, when you said you could put anything you want in your mouth and it's not unclean, that really offended them. And Jesus was like, YOLO, I don't care. I do not care that I offended them. But remember, the disciples are not yet as offended by the Pharisees as Jesus is. Because where did the Pharisees come from, this group? They came from Jerusalem. These are uppity Pharisees. These are the ones that are supposed to be well-groomed well and well, they're precise in all of their ways. You, you can't hurt their feelings. It's not like you hurt Rabbi Joe's feelings over at the swollen hemorrhoid you know, synagogue. This is somebody, they, they're important. You can't do this, Jesus, okay? And, and the disciples came and said to Jesus, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended? And Jesus answered said, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. What does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, I didn't come here to protect their little fancy pants laws. I gave them the laws I wanted them to have, and they made extra ones, and so I'm, up, I'm uprooting those. And when you speak truth to people who are believing a lie, it'll hurt their feelings. Does Jesus seem real concerned about that at this moment? No, not even a little. Verse, uh, verse 14, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And the disciples, they go, hold on, say, oh, wait, what? These are, these are the congressional aides. They have the ear to power. You, well, you can't call them blind, Jesus. You can't say they don't understand. And Jesus is like, yeah, I can. Look what he says. If a blind man guides a blind man, both are going to fall into the pit. You follow the Pharisees if you want, apostles but you're going to go into the same pit that they showed up in, these Pharisees. And then Peter said to Jesus, now I'm assuming this is like after some, like some intensity had, had settled down. Y'all ever have an argument with your, your beloved? Uh-uh. What am I? Uh, I had a high school teacher, a raised voice fellowship. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you ever have like this, this, this verbal, like, you don't, mm, mm. so I think things had settled. So like, this is not like happening like one moment to the next. There's some, 
All right, we've settled. We've settled, okay? Uh, Matthew and Andrew and Peter went over and talked to the Pharisees. It was like, hey, chill. We'll go talk to Jesus for you. And, and, but, but Peter had a question. He, he was really like, he was like, you said something earlier that really confused me, Jesus. Look what he says. Peter said to Jesus, explain the parable to us. Now, what parable is he talking about? Did y'all see a parable in any of this? The idea of being able to eat anything was confusing to everybody, not the least of which is Peter. And he goes, so that was a parable, and I don't understand it. Okay? Was it a parable? No. Uh, let's look at Jesus' response together. Um, now, this is, this is Bible talk, okay? But imagine you are looking at your teenage son who's just done something and said something really stupid, and you look at him, and we'll use the words of Jesus in verse 16, are you still lacking in understanding? <laughs> what did Jesus just say to Peter? Say it, Rachel. It came out. What? Are you still stupid? That's exactly. In the Greek, the, the Greek verb parsing here, it's a very aggressive response. Say it again, Rachel. Are you stupid? Oh, yeah. Are you still so dull? Uh, so with that word, mine says, are you still lacking in understanding also, right? Are you as stupid as they are? And Peter was... Well, maybe I don't. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I was just asking for them. I was. This is such an unorthodox position for Jesus to take that you can consume anything and still be clean, righteous. That Peter thought it was a parable. He thought it was a story that meant something else. Verse seventeen. Do you not un now keep this tone, Rachel? She's got the tone. She understood. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated in the latrine? That's literally the, the, what, the, what the Greek says, okay? It's eliminated into the toilet. Do you not know that? Now, what goes into the toilet? See, oh, yeah, so churchy. You can't even say poop or turd in church. Well, okay. Everybody but Jerry. Uh, yeah, all right. All right, so y'all are all thinking it. That's exactly what Jesus is intoning with this very aggressive response to Peter. You put it in the mouth, it goes through your gut, and it passes out like in a toilet. And so this is an example of a Roman toilet in Jesus' day. We're gonna, I'm going to show you a Jewish toilet. Theirs was a little different. Uh, y'all see the holes? What do y'all notice about those? What do you notice, people? They're dancing cheek to cheek. Okay? Uh, these are very close. There, there is actually uh, the, uh, the, aristocratic, the aristocratic part of the Roman community had servants or slaves that would go in the morning and sit on their designated toilet seat uh, to get it warm for them before they arrived because early morning business, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, was taken care of while they did their early morning business. And so you would have a group of people. How you could hold hands? Like, Do you think they made laws up in there? Absolutely. Yeah. 
where do you think such terrible legal system comes from? Uh, they're like, this is a great idea. It is really alarming. All right. All right, now, next one. Now, this is funny. This was found in the 13th century. This, so this is well after the Roman era in Jesus. Uh, but this was found. Um, this is uh, the lintel of a window. This is, so it's, it's you, you'll kind of see where it's been bricked in, right? But that, that, that top part, the top of the door, top of the window, says this is the window. It's in Hebrew. This is the window that you throw feces out of. <laughs> so... Uh, there's only one of these ever found in the ancient world. We don't know why it's here, but it was actually, it was probably, uh, if Robin Williams, who is, was a Jew, was, lived in the 13th century, he's like, this will be hilarious. Uh, so he had poo written on his wall. This is the window you throw your poo out of. It could have been anything. It could have been anything. All right, next one. Now, this is a public toilet found in Jerusalem. You can go visit this. When you go walk the walk of Christ, the Via Della Rosa, you can also go visit this public toilet in Jerusalem. All right. Now, if you'll notice the construction here, I, mm, I guess you just sat on two slabs. Yes. As Shakira would say, the hips don't lie, right? So I guess that's the smaller ones maybe are for the smaller people. Um, all right. Let's stand by. Let's get back to Matthew. Uh, I just want to show you this. I did. Well, Jesus brought it up, right? He's like, you are so worried about these laws, right? Uh, but I'm telling you, you need to think. You need to think of this like it's, it's, this is just toilet talk. Don't worry about being clean or unclean. It's just the bathroom. Stop worrying about it. Verse 17. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the man comes from the heart, and those who defile are the things that defile a man. He's saying it's not what you put into your body that makes you unclean. Your heart is broken, and terrible things come out of you. That is what tells us that you're a sinner. That is what tells us that you need a relationship with Jesus, with me. And he goes on to give us a list. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witnesses and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile a man. Who's sitting over there listening to him chiding the disciples? Those Pharisees, right? And this is really going to be very disruptive in the way that Jesus continues his ministry from this point forward, okay? Now, it's, it's important to point out that Jesus is right on the border, if not outside of the territory of Israel, when he's, when he's having these conversations. So the Pharisees and scribes have come outside of Israel to see Jesus. He is trying to back away from the crowds. He is so tired. And he's trying to get away from all these Jews who keep coming after him for healing and for teaching. And he teaches them. And then Peter walks up and thinks Jesus is talking in parables. He's like, no, I'm straight and shooting the straight dope with you here. Like, and Peter's like, I still don't, I don't get it. He's like, are you, are you still so dumb? You know, um, verse 21. So Jesus confronts the religious prejudice of the Pharisees, right? But now he's going to do something very 
I'm going to tell you, this is one of the most difficult parts of any of the Gospels for me to understand. I think I have the key to it, but this is, this is, there's some freedom in how you apply and interpret this next passage. Jesus does something here that seems downright sinful, just mean-spirited, okay? But coming to the text, I know I'm the broken one, and Jesus is the fixed one. So whatever Jesus does is the right thing in the right moment, done the right way good morning and must be applied that way so we have to adjust our perspective in a way that 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 helps us understand what's going on in the scripture so matthew chapter 15 verse 21 says this jesus went away from there with and uh, withdrew into the district of tyre and sidon all right y'all see the map up here on the screen um i, I got a map that has a big thing sidon and tyre so Jesus crosses the border, you see that, of Israel, and goes up into this region, which is now modern-day what? Lebanon. Okay. So Jesus is up there cruising around, actively avoiding the Jews. He's tired. I got I to gotta get away. I got to get away. There's a reason why pastors cannot do staycations. Okay, y'all know? Is that verbiage y'all understand? Staycation? What's a staycation? It's when you're too broke to go anywhere. Uh, what? They have to get away. They have to go far, far away. Because if anybody finds out that they're a preacher, they're going to get the, the, the 20 questions. Right? And so he's exhausted. i got to get away. Now, we'll see that it doesn't help much. Verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, the, the Greek intoned scream, right? Uh, cry out saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Now, what does that tell us about this woman's understanding of who Jesus is? She has a working knowledge of what, what's up, right? So she doesn't know everything, but she knows enough. And she knows that G this Jesus, the son of David, like he, he's got something, and I need it. Continue on. Uh, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, we're going to pause here. I'm going to give you a little snippet of the next couple of weeks to come. We are right in a region here that is fertile with ancient spirituality. There is a mountain not far from here called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon has had uh, altars and temples and and tabernacles and all kinds of, uh, you name it, from ancient days to now. The, the locals believe there is a lot of spiritual activity happening on Mount Hermon. We're going to show you some interesting things next week and the couple of weeks after of what's happening at Mount, Mount Hermon. But Jesus is in this zip code. He's right in this area. So it should surprise us not that there is there are individuals, adults and children, that are radically oppressed by the demonic because this is a spiritually potent zip code, right? You follow me? Okay, so she says, she, he's uh, in verse uh, 22, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed, but Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged Jesus, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Okay? So you have at least 12 grown men and one screaming woman, and who's the uncomfortable party? 
the men. Yeah, we don't know what to do with her. She's being a little extra today, and we're... Now, I want you to compare how her disruptive behavior was brought to Jesus as a problem to be sent away, but the Pharisees' disruptive behavior, how was it brought to Jesus? Oh, worse. You hurt their feelings, Jesus. Do y'all see the difference? So the religious people showed up and the disciples were concerned that their feelings were cared for. But a broken woman, this broken soul showed up and what were they concerned about? Their image. Do y'all see, see the contrast? Now, I think that this right here is where the key to understanding this passage is. Um, because I have read this passage a thousand different ways. If taken only at face value and you don't, you don't dig into the history and context, this looks like Jesus is acting racist and acting incredibly mean-spirited right here in this moment. Matter of fact, there is a very liberal TikTok preacher, and I use that term loosely, uh, <laughs> that actually says that Jesus was being racist in this moment, and this woman corrected Jesus, and then he stopped being racist after that. Uh, I've got a lot of problems with that for a lot of reasons. Um, namely, they're both Semitic people. And nevertheless, he's a Jew. She's a Jew, uh, not a Jewish uh, woman. And she's a woman. But check it out. So he didn't answer her word. The disciples came and begged Jesus, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Um, but he answered, Jesus answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus is setting up some boundaries here. Who wrote this gospel? Matthew. Matthew, okay? Who is the primary audience of the gospel of Matthew when it was written? It was Jews, okay? The gospel of Mark records this exact story, except, except they call this woman the Syrophoenician woman in Mark because they didn't use term the term Canaanite, when they were in Rome. They knew it as the Syrophoenician area, and the Jews knew it as Canaan. So Matthew, the Jew, calls her the Canaanite, but Mark's gospel, writing for Peter, calls her the Syrophoenician woman because that's the region they understood. Same place, different names. You follow? The gospel of Mark does not include the phrase, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why do you think Mark, who's writing for a Gentile audience, wouldn't include that phrase that Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's right. It was a phrase that the that the Romans would have thought to be. Well, hold on. I'm not. I'm not of Israel. Mark left it out because it's not germane to the story that Mark's telling. Matthew is trying to illustrate something. Jesus fought the religious prejudice of the extreme conservative. But now he had to fight the racial prejudice of who? The Pharisees aren't in the picture anymore. The group he left in Israel. Who's got the racial prejudice? The disciples. Is there any way? Good morning. Is there any way that we can see where it's important that the disciples, we got Back row, front row, you name it. It's all for you. <laughs> Welcome. 
is there, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 15, uh, long about verse 21 through 28. Um, is it important for the disciples to start picking up that you can't be racist and a Christian, a follower of me? Is it important? Why? Absolutely. It's not what you put in. It's the condition of your heart. Oh, yes. So it's the same foundational principle that Jesus is teaching. He had to teach it one way to these Pharisees, but he had to teach it in a wholly different way to his disciples. Same lesson, but we got to get you over this prejudice. We got to get you over this idea that you have got all this, all the things fixed. You need some special treatment, and it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep reading. And she came, and she began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Holy smokes. This doesn't even compute to us, okay? We're like, eh, because most of us, if, if not all of us, have a pet at the house, and one of them's a dog. And uh, so my wife has a dog. I don't care. Uh, uh, it, it's her dog, so she does the dog stuff. So the dog does dumb stuff. My wife's responsible for cleaning up the mess. That's that's the dog. Um, in this day and age, pets, dog dogs weren't pets the way we understand them. These were these were uh, these were street mongrels. Okay, these were scavengers. And so to be called a dog, like, like what's up, my dog? Like that's not even a thing for them. And even in Arabic culture now. That is highly offensive to this day. You don't call someone, what's up, dog? That's not happening. Mm -mm. No, you might as well call them an ugly word, right? And that's the same thing. And Jesus says, I can't feed the dogs the children's bread. Let me tell you what happens to the bread. After they've eaten their bread, now we don't do this in America because we eat all our carbs because we're hydrated. Carbohydrating, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so we bring the food out to the table. We eat all our bread. Uh, or our tortilla chips or whatever it is, we don't leave any over. That's crazy talk. Uh, but in this case, whatever was left over, uh, when their fingers were greasy, they wouldn't pick up a napkin. They'd pick up the bread. They would wipe their fingers. The bread would absorb it. And as they did that, as it crumbled, the crumbs would fall to the ground. And the word here, little, it's, it's the little crumbs would fall off the children, the little people's table, and the little dogs would get it. So these, are, these aren't full-grown dogs. These are little puppies right and she's saying but even even the puppies come in and eat up after the children after jesus has seemingly just insulted her okay and here's why i don't think he was insulting her look how quick he transitioned from from insult air quote to blessing here it comes but she said yes lord even the the little dogs feed on the little crumbs which fall from their master's table and jesus said to her oh woman now, I, I went and I asked G chat GPT. Y'all have heard of this? I said, give me a list of all the times G it's, it's a new AI. You're, you're going to get it. You're a teacher. You're going to get it. You're going to get papers written by chat GPT. Uh, and you're like, this is incredible. You're an you're a F student, and you're turning in these wonderful papers on how the trombone was made. Um, how was that possible? Chat GPT. Ask chat GPT. How many times did Jesus call someone in the Gospels woman? Every single time. It was either his mother or he was offering a blessing 
or a miraculous healing to someone. Jesus never said woman in a way that was in any way negative. And here, in my translation, it says, oh, woman, it's to emphasize this exclamation point. Oh, wow. You understood the assignment. You, you pressed past what you saw as the racial prejudice of my people, and you got to what you needed, which was Jesus. And he says, oh, woman, your faith is great. The last time Jesus said he was impressed with someone's faith, it was a Roman centurion several chapters ago. I find that interesting. The only time Jesus has been impressed with people's faith was when it was not Jews. Nevertheless, uh, he said, it shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Uh, the Greek is, uh, is, is shaped up this way. It was, she was healed at once forever. That's how it should read. So Jesus healed the little girl of this demon uh, oppression, never for it to come back. His healing of this little girl was from here till that little girl died and presumably followed Jesus. I would think so, right? Verse 29, let's see if we can't step up the pace just a smidge. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. Now that we are to understand, he's gone to the northeast corner. Uh-oh. There's Galilee. Oh, we're going to have to zoom in. Here's kind of that little spot, a little gravy stain on the map there. The little blue right there. That's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is going to travel to the northeast uh, corner, which is the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? So it's not too far from here that Jesus uh, cast Legion, the man with many demons, out. It's just not far from where he's at right now. Again, he is staying away from those, those Israelites because they are driving him crazy. So he goes over there. Departing from there, Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain... He was sitting there. When's the last time Jesus went up on the mountain and sat? What was he doing? He was praying, right? Remember he walked on water last week? This, he went to the same place, give or take, right? He didn't go up on the mountain. I've got to get away from these crazy people. I've got to rest. He was sitting there, and large crowds came to Jesus, bringing with him those who were lame and crippled and blind and mute and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. Now, I'm guessing there was a mixture of Jew and Gentile here, but Jesus left a Gentile community, Tyre and Sidon, where he just radically healed a young demon-oppressed girl and then left. That caught traction. I'm guessing, uh, contextually, that a lot of these individuals that are coming to be healed are Gentile. Verse uh, 31. So the crowd, um, the crowd marveled as they, as they saw the mute speaking and the crippled restored. By the way, this is exact application of that Isaiah 29 passage we read a couple moments ago that Jesus introduced to the Pharisees, but now he's doing in real life. He says, I'm going to make the wise foolish, and I'm going to make the foolish wise. I'm going to take the good from those that think they're good and make it bad. And then I'm going to take the people who have nothing but bad, and I'm going to turn it to good. There's nothing clearer in this than the Jew who deserves or who God wants to pour his grace on but refuses it. And he goes, I'll go to the Gentile who don't know me, and I'll give them good graces. This is a really interesting uh, application of that. Um, So the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. 
And then at the end of chapter 15, at verse 32, we have just this other seemingly random miracle stuck out here. We're going to call it the feeding of the 4,000. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, what did Jesus do? He fed 5,000 in a similar location, but not the same location. There they had grass. We're going to see here they just had ground. Okay? Um, and so, so they're out there. Let's look at the story. So Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they remain with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. What? Explain this to me. Y'all talk to me. What, what, how long have they been out there? Three days. Uh, what, what, is their, what is their food situation? Uh, sparse at best. At best. And if they brought a knapsack, they've been out there for so long. How committed are they to seeing this Jesus do his work? They're willing to, to not eat to see the show, to feel the power, to sense the grace of God. And I'm going to tell you what, I know some folks that about 12 o'clock when their stumble starts grumbling, I, I pastored at Calvary Baptist Church, Yazoo City, Mississippi, 1408 Jackson Avenue. And I had one man that at noon o'clock got up and walked out the back door. And I finally, I called him. I'm like, hey, bro, what's wrong? He said, I have a sugar problem. And if I don't eat at 12, I get angry. I said, well, brother, you better eat now. You got issues right now, right? Okay. Uh, so I started putting a pack of nabs on his pew, and that didn't. <laughs> brother, I'd like to tell you that helped, but it did not. It did not go over well. Um, uh, yeah, these people stood out there for three days because, like, they knew what they were watching, and they'd rather not eat. But what happens after you don't eat for a while? You, you get hungry, you get weak, you get tired. And Jesus looked upon all, all these people that are weak and tired, and he goes, I can't, I can't let this stand. Um, I don't want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. And the disciples said to Jesus, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place and satisfy such a large crowd? I think Jesus waited three days. It's a clear problem. What did he just show them just a couple weeks ago? Trust in the Lord, I will provide. All I need you to do is to just trust what I did and then feed these people. And one day passed, and they don't feed the people. And two day passes, and the disciples don't feed the people. And the third day gets around, Jesus is like, they're never going to get this, Lord. Their father Oh, why couldn't you send me some smart people? Um, they don't get it. They were that, that, yeah, and they rejected him, right? Uh, so they, they, oh, he's like, three days I gave you guys a chance to fix this, and you didn't. And he goes, fine. How many loaves do you have? Verse thirty-four, and they said we have seven and a few small fish. That is probably like dried anchovies, right? Kind of these dry fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. Last time it was sitting on the grass, so we think this is in a different location. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks, and he broke them, and he started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Do you see a problem here with the disciples? Even after Peter point blank got shot at by Jesus, are you still so dull? Guess what they still are? 
dull. Yeah, right over. Like, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm Here, go do these things. And they're like, oh, I don't know how to do this. I've just showed you. I Live in my power. Live in my grace. I would put that to you guys. There are things that, that Jesus is 100% capable of doing in your life. If you and I would just quit being so dull. And just go, all right, Lord, this problem's bigger than me. But I want you to fix this in the power of Jesus Christ. I think a lot of us are really scared for two things. Number one, what if it didn't work? We'd look like a failure. Or I think the other part is, is true. What if it succeeded? Then what would happen? I'd have to commit my life more to Christ because I saw it plainly in front of me. I think, I think those two things are happening all the time in our lives. So they sat down. He broke them and started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate, and they were all satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, and seven uh, large baskets were full. The last time, it was set, uh, 12 baskets, and they were, uh, the Greek word really means hand basket, like a bread basket you bring to a table. This this word here literally means like like a hamper basket, like, like a clothes hamper. Now, man, I know you don't know what those are, but like women, you know what I'm talking about, the hampers? Um, big baskets. So they brought Jesus just a little, and what did he give? Satisfaction and then seven huge returns of these baskets, okay? So this is huge. I'm, I'm wondering where the baskets come from. That's my question. You didn't have no food, but you got clothes. What's going on, people? Um, hit closed baskets. Verse 38, and those who were, who were there were 4,000 men besides women and children. So 4,000 men, and you can extrapolate out if there were a, uh, an equal or similar amount of women and children, um, this could have been easily eight, ten thousand 10,000 people. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got in the boat, and he went from the northeast corner over back to the, to the western side to like, uh, it says here Mag Magadan. We don't know where that is. It sounds like Mag Magdala, but it's not the same. Um, so somewhere on the east coast, he goes to another village and he starts preaching again. We'll kick off chapter 16, but it can, it's a continuation of chapter 15. Uh, it's a continuation of the story, and we'll get to that momentarily. Um, but we see here a Jesus who is rocking people's perspectives. He's challenging their religious prejudice. He's challenging their racial prejudice. And then he turns around and he hands the ropes of the king, the reins of the kingdom over to his disciples. And they don't know what to do with it. And he's like, fine, give them back. I'll do it myself. And then chapter 16, some really incredible things are going to happen and develop uh, as this story continues. All right.